Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey, everyone. Welcome to episode number 165 of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. Again, our Director of Research and Trading, Nick Whitaker, is filling in for Matt this week. So welcome back, Nick. Good to be here, as always. Yeah. So we're getting into September. We got college football starting this weekend. MLB playoffs are starting this weekend. Me and my family being a a big Mets fan, uh, very happy with the performance of the Mets so far with the the Braves, though, closely uh, on their on their tail, chasing them in the number one spot in the division. So we've been watching that a lot lately, but we're getting into the fall, buddy. Summer has come and is gone. Yep, it's uh, it's official. September's here. Yeah. So um, with regards to the markets, uh, obviously not the August that people wanted following the strong month of July. So before we begin, as always, just wanted to take the first few minutes to recap the performance of the month of the year for the major indexes that we track. And these numbers are as of the market close on August 31st. So this is the full data set for the month of August. S&P 500 index down 3.5% for the month and down 16.4% for the year. The Dow Jones Industrial Average down 3.2% for the month, down 12.5% for the year. NASDAQ Composite Index down 4.1% for the month and down 24% for the year. The iShares Russell 2000 ETF down 1.4% for the month and down 17% for the year. Uh, The Vanguard All World X United States ETF down 4% for the month and 19.1% for the year. Uh, One of the things that stood out to me here, Nick, just from looking at the August numbers is small caps outperforming on a relative basis. And I think that's interesting, especially what we've seen in the last half of August that still small caps were able to outperform on a relative basis and that is not a risk-off trade right no not at all um so that's something that we want to see that gives credence to the fact that hey maybe we're getting closer and closer to the end um here for people uh but we'll get into some of that here later in a bit uh three-month treasury rate at 2.97 percent the Uh, The two-year treasury rate at 3.46% and the 10-year treasury rate at 3.11%. Moving on to big headlines, current events from the week. Uh, As promised uh, that I was going to bring this up, uh, I told people that on last week's podcast, there was a revision to the Q2 GDP numbers out last week, uh, and this was from briefing.com. It was made clear that Q2 GDP was not as bad as first reported, but that doesn't mean it wasn't it was good. Uh, The revised Q2 GDP report showed real GDP decreased at an annual rate of 0.6 percent versus the advanced estimate of 0.9 percent with an upward revision to consumer spending helping. So. Still, we got two negative, uh, two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth. So again, basing on what everybody's definition is of a recession, the revision didn't change that is what I wanted to, to put out there for people. 
second, um, obviously the big headline from last week, uh, Nick was Fed Chair uh, Jerome Powell's speech on the 26th. So on uh, last Friday, uh, Powell reinforced a hawkish view, acknowledging that large rate hikes are still needed to combat inflation. His eight-minute speech kind of rattled investors, uh, you know, as the words he used somewhere in the long of the lines of economic pain and slow growth sent the S&P 500 down about three and a half percent last Friday. So I know you have a little bit more on, on the speech for people here in a bit, so I will leave that for you. Uh, moving on to tweets, articles, and research from this week, the first thing I had um, was a tweet from Willie Delwich uh, talking about monetary policy during presidential ele election cycles. Um, so we'll have Jenna throw this tweet up on the YouTube video for people who are watching via YouTube. Uh, Willie said, student loan forgiveness is entirely consistent with past efforts to juice the economy heading into midterm elections. It's what gives rise to the presidential election cycle for stocks. Uh, and in this chart that Willie posted uh, in the top panel is stocks, which is in blue, and the bottom is monetary and fiscal policy. And I just want to read some commentary from the chart report on this. They said the big headline today was Biden's plan to forgive a, a portion of student debt. It's controversial, but it's important to note that it's happening right where you'd expect it to within the presidential cycle. The blue line shows the Dow throughout the four-year presidential, uh, presidential election cycle. The orange line shows the real money and fiscal policy index, which we call liquidity. This chart shows that liquidity and stocks go hand in hand throughout the presidential cycle. As you can see, the best years for stocks tend to come in the third and fourth years of a president's term. As an election approaches, the sitting president tends to do everything in their power to stimulate the economy, which in turn tends to boost stock prices. Did Joe just answer the market's call for more liquidity? So I think it's just important to note that, you know, because we've talked about the four-year presidential election cycle so much this year, Nick, and mm -hmm. that the midterm year tends to be the weakest out of the four-year period. Um, and specifically from the beginning of the midterm year, which was, in this case, the beginning of 2022, yep. up until roughly right before the midterm elections, right? So it's not abnormal for presidents and their administration to announce some sort of quote-unquote fiscal stimulus you know, to juice things up going into the midterms, right? So um, just wanted people to be aware of that, that the timing of this uh, was not just happenstance. I don't think that it was right before the midterm elections. Yeah, awfully coincidental. Huh? Yeah, it is. Second thing that I had was a tweet from Nate Geraci uh, talking about the underperformance of international stocks. So uh, Nate put up a chart that Jenna will also throw up on the YouTube video right now. And he said, underperformance of international stocks now approaching 15 years. This is wild. So I thought this was a really good chart, Nick, because I think a lot of people adhere to the typical portfolio theory that you know, you need to have some sort of exposure to domestic and international stocks. But this chart is glaringly obvious as to why it hasn't made sense over the past roughly 15 years mm -hmm. to have a significant allocation to international. 
And people can argue about what the reasons are for international underperforming domestic stocks. But all I really care about is that international has been underperforming by a wide margin over the last 15 years. And that's why when we ever we get the question is, hey, you know, what's going on? There's not a whole lot of international exposure. And that's for a reason. Right. Mm -hmm. And this chart outlines that perfectly. And just because, you know, people are taught in college that, you know, you have to have some sort of exposure to international markets, whether that that's developed markets or emerging mm-hmm. markets, um, looking at this chart, it really hasn't paid to be invested internationally over the past 15 years. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the chart really speaks for itself, doesn't it? Yeah. And, yeah. and you know, there have been a lot of people with the rotation over the past couple of years from uh, growth back to value that were, you know, on their high horse saying this is a perfect opportunity for international stocks because international stocks are more of a value tilt, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so not as much technology, more financials, um, you know, more energy, that type of stuff. But that still has not played out year to date as international markets continue to underperform uh, the domestic indices here in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Last thing I have is about Black Friday deals, Nick. So we haven't seen a lot of Black Friday deals in the last couple of years due to COVID and supply chain constraints. Um, So this article uh, comes from Ben Carlson on August 26th. Um, And he's talking about Black Friday deals and kind of the supply chain. So he says consumers are going to see some amazing deals this year for Black Friday. Supply constraints have made deals hard to come by these past couple of years. That environment appears to be all but over now that consumers have shifted their excess spending from goods to services and travel. The supply chain problems meant consumers couldn't get stuff when they wanted it. Retailers responded by loading up once things improved, but by then consumers had changed their spending patterns. Target, Walmart, and Macy's announced recently that they are starting to receive large shipments of outdoor furniture, loungewear, and electronics everyone wanted but couldn't find during the pandemic. The problem for retailers is that these goods are delayed by almost two years. Could be a windfall for those in the market for sweatpants or couches. There are going to be discounts like you've never seen before, says Mickey Chadha, a Moody Investor Service analyst who tracks the retail industry. Inventory levels got so high that some inventory is going straight to the liquidator stores. Liquidated, liquid, liquidity Services, Inc. and other companies said they are seeing a glut of kitchen appliances, televisions, outdoor furniture, and apparel that major chains are trying to clear out. In many cases, the liquidators are picking up pallets at the ports or from a warehouse without the goods ever hitting store shelves and selling the items to small retailers and individuals who can resell them online. Ben's in the market for some patio furniture and a new TV, and he's willing to be patient. Black Friday could have some amazing deals this year. And the reason I bring this up is, you know, number one, it'd be nice to see some some Black Friday deals again for consumers. And number two, I think it's going to show you that the supply chain is slowly getting back to mm-hmm. normalization, right? Yeah. So we had we talk about pendulum swings all the time, and it went way one way where people wanted their their goods but couldn't yeah. get them, and now since they couldn't get their goods, they were spending to experiences, yeah. and now you have retailers with this glut of supply that they need to get rid of because they're not going to make any money off of it. Yeah. Um, so very good for the American consumer, I think. Uh, uh, excuse me, American consumer. 
Um, so we'll see what happens here over the next couple of months. But if you're on the, the prowl for anything that I mentioned uh, just previously here, possibly wait until you get some Black Friday deals. Yeah, maybe take a take a breather on it. Yeah. So yeah. and I know that there's still, you know, some people respond, well, hey, with, you know, the industrial sector, there's and, and manufacturing sector, there's still, you know, major supply issues. But I think we have to remember that two thirds of our economy is driven by consumer spending. Consumer so, spending, yeah. um, so again, uh, hopefully, uh, you know, this will help, especially with inflation that we're experiencing right now. Mm -hmm. So Absolutely. I will turn it over to you. Yeah, the first piece I have is about underlying strength and uh, market movements. And this is a tweet from David Keller on the 30th. And Jenna will throw this chart up. It's a chart of the S&P. Um, and, and David says the following. A percent of S&P names above their 50-day moving average went from 5% to 90% and now is approaching 50% again. Last time this, this happened was June 2020. It has happened three to four other times since 2009 low. All eventually resolved higher. Is this time any different? So, and, and by no means am I saying, you know, stake everything on this chart. Mm -hmm. Their stats, um, it, could always, it could always go away, but um, the, the chart uh, to, to pay attention um, when you're looking at this chart is look at the green line down there. That's what he's talking about, um, where you can see that green line jump up to 90% and kind of come back down and test that 50%. And what, what that just means is the, of the 500 tickers, um, a per whatever percentage of those is trading above their their 50-day moving average, so mm -hmm. it's kind of a momentum factor and and shows you shows you how things are are moving broad based. So I would say this is a an interesting statistic. What yeah, and I think the important thing to note is when you know we're using moving averages, that's typically what people use to define an up uptrend or a downtrend, right? So if you're above the 50-day or you're above the 200-day moving average. That's typically defined as an uptrend. If you're below it, defined as a downtrend. So and I think the important thing to note from this chart too, Nick, is that the previous rallies that we got that were short-term in nature before the market fell even further throughout the year. So for example, back when we got that rally in March, we got another little rally in May. But you know, the number of stocks that were trading above their 50-day moving average didn't even sniff the 90% level. Right. Yeah. And this time that was different. And what we like to see coming off of market bottoms is a lot of stocks participating in the upside. And yeah. that's what we saw off of the June lows. So, again, I'm not saying the, the June lows are that's it and we're going to move higher from here. But this rally was in my opinion, significantly different and more constructive yep. than the previous bear market rallies that we had in March and in May. Yep, absolutely. And and to unpack that a little bit more for listeners so they, they understand exactly what we're saying here, you know, of their 500, the S&P can move higher if your top-weighted names, everyone's buying those. Right, because the S&P 500's market, market, market cap-weighted. Exactly. So what this this is showing us is that it's more broad based, which is, which is exactly which is what, what we saying. want to see. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, a good chart. The next thing I have is, is diving into, um, a piece of research, uh, from Jim Bianco at Bianco research, um, about persistent inflation. And it's a pretty long piece. So, uh, we're going to throw up 
one uh, one chart here. Um, and Jenna, I'll, I'll get with you on which chart to, to throw up there for listeners because there's a lot in this piece. But it's a very interesting take on inflation, and I'm not saying that I agree with it, but uh, uh, he, he has a couple good points in here that I thought we could talk about. So he says the following. Bloomberg had the story yesterday. Inflation fever is finally breaking, but central banks won't stop hiking rates. Um, and, and he talks about how everyone is, is making the mistake of, of forecasting uh, a drastic reduction to 2%. And this whole piece, piece of uh, research, and you'll see the chart here, discusses how every forecast of economists always looks at the future and says, we're going to rapidly come back to 2% every single time. Mm-hmm. Inflation, back, that is. I- inflation, yeah. Yes, yeah, every single time. And um, his take is that eventually you'll be right. But if, if you look at it, it's like every time we get to a new inflation print, the economists say, okay, well, now we're going to go back to 2%. Okay, well, now we're going to go back to 2% mm-hmm. in, a, in a dramatic fashion. And that's just not been the case. Um, and And one of the things he argues here is that a lot of stuff has changed in the economy um, fundamentally. And one of the things that stuck out to me in this piece of research was uh, that, he, that he called out was a, a decrease in globalization, which was quite interesting. And, and his argument basically says that um, if things were to go back to exactly how they were in 2019, then yes, he can see these predictions being, being true. And, and he argues the opposite. Um, that the the forward curve for the Fed policy, the rates, inflation, surveys uh, of economists and money managers are actually poor indicators of the future. And and he thinks that persistent inflation is a very possible thing. Now, he's not calling for persistent inflation in in the 8% range, but he's saying it could be higher than we think, and it could take us longer to get down to that 2% range relative to what you see uh, on the street. So um, an interesting take, but um, this chart kind of says a lot when you look at all these different lines and, and all the different forecasts. It's a pretty cool chart. But mm-hmm. uh, what are your what are your thoughts on? This? Well, well I just think it goes back to that no one can predict the future. I mean, how long was the Fed chair, um, you know, out there in front of everybody saying inflation is transitory? It's not going to last very long. Mm-hmm. And here we are. It's lasting long. And now they've completely changed their stance. And now he's saying things, but it's going to be here a lot longer and it's going to take longer and more aggressive rate hikes to get back to a normal level. So even arguably the guy that has the most insight on the economy has changed his tune. So I think that just goes to show you that that's why I don't put a lot of weight into forecasts and predictions because they're usually not accurate and it doesn't do any good to predict and forecast. And this is just another perfect example of that. Mm-hmm. Um, you kind of just have to take it, take the information as it comes in and make decisions based off of that. But I don't understand still why people are so obsessed with, you know, economists predicting where inflation is going to be or where the target of the S and P 500 is going to be by the end of the year. Cause it just doesn't do any good. Right. 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 So, so, and, and the, the main takeaway here being, a, a from Jim, I'm not saying I agree or disagree with him. Um, but his thought is, you know, be, be wary of, of those headlines that, oh, the end of inflation is here. It's peaking. It's going to come back to 2% in six months, and we'll be back to the way things were in 2019. He's saying, you know, prepare yourself for the possibility that things don't go back 
as quickly as, as people as people want. Um, and that leads me into to my last piece here, which is just some takeaways from the from the Fed chair Powell speech on last Friday, because um, all of this stuff is obviously related. Um, and I, this is another piece of research from briefing.com. And uh, I'm not going to read it, but I'm just going to just kind of summarize what what's going on and what moved the market so aggressively and why the markets move so aggressively. So as you mentioned earlier, his his speech was very short. Uh, very direct, um, shorter than most speeches in history. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, he basically came out and said, hey, we're, you know, we're really focused on, on the task at hand, which is getting inflation under control. Um, you know, nothing he said was particularly surprising to the market. I think it was more uh, the way he went about it and how direct he was. Um, most of the time, if, you, if anyone has watched uh, uh, an economist speech like that, they're normally... You know, go into a lot of detail on different Lull, economic data sleep. points. That, yeah, it lulls you to sleep. His was direct and to the point. Um, you know, he spent a, a little bit of time talking about the the high and volatile inflation in the '70s and the '80s, um, and how you know he was he was he and the, the whole Fed are really focused on putting their their foot on the pedal. Um, and importantly, he said that he knows that the Fed needs to keep driving beyond the neutral rate. Uh, the long-run estimate of a neutral rate is 2.5% uh, to a restrictive destination that is yet to be determined. And there's a, there's a chart here that, that we'll throw up as well from this piece of research. But um, you know, it, I think it provided a, a, a bit of a reality check for the markets, which is why you saw that pullback. I think partly the markets was looking for something, and, and he kind of came out and, and was, was direct and aggressive enough to give the reason uh, to give market participants a reason to sell, which is why the, the market moved um, so aggressively lower. Um, you know, one of the things he said that, that also stuck out is uh, the following, restoring price stability will likely require maintaining a restrictive policy stance for some time. The historical record, record cautions strongly against prematuring, uh, prematurely loosening policy. Now, that is exactly what the market does not want to hear. Right, right. <laughs> the market is always focused on, okay, we're in a rate, hi- uh, a rate hike cycle, but when's it going to loosen? That's, that's all the market's listening for. They want to see the light at the end of the tunnel. They want to see that, that peak, that curve, so that they can start forecasting and, and predicting, uh, predicting the future, right? Um, so those kind of strong statements is really really what, uh, what pushed the market lower. Um, so now the, the big debate, and some of this has already been, gone, been ongoing, but now the big debate's gonna be hard or soft landing. Um, you know, in, in either case, the, the main takeaway here is uh, such an aggressive hawkishness that it, it kind of shocked the market a little bit. So mm-hmm. now we're trading in some very key technical levels. We, we fell into that 50-day moving average, so we'll, we'll see what happens from here. But um, a, a pretty strong stance from from fed powell that we're not used to seeing from from economists so mm-hmm. what are your, what are your and i think it's important to define what we mean by by the fed chair being hawkish so typically in the mainstream media you know hawkish means you know a more pronounced period of restrictive monetary policy and being dovish uh means uh a loosened policy right cutting rates providing stimulus to the economy yeah or just not being as aggressive with interest rate hikes. Right. And I think that's what a lot of people were looking for is they were looking at the Fed to pivot and be like, mm-hmm. okay, we're starting to see PCE 
and CPI roll over, maybe we're not going to have to be as aggressive as we initially thought. And that's not what happened. And I think that's also what what shocked some people uh, last Friday when when Powell spoke was that they were expecting him to be like, eh, you know, we'll probably raise throughout the end of the year and then we'll reevaluate in the beginning of 2023. But he was pretty clear that they were going to be on their aggressive path regardless yeah. of what the next couple of months of CPI and PCE right. come in at. Right? Exactly. Yeah. He, he basically came out and, and let the market know that, uh, the, the hawkish stance is here to stay until they really see the numbers come down, mm-hmm. which is understandable. I mean, it's, it's very high. They do have to take action. Um, um, but you know, sometimes the market doesn't get what it wants. Um, right. That's, that's a reality. Right. And so. we have to remember that the fed has two you know, main objectives. Number one is price stability. So that's dealing with the inflation that we're experiencing right now and, and maintaining full employment. Um, so unemployment is still near, you know, historical lows, right? So we haven't seen a crack in that yet. Yeah. So that's what makes this period so interesting is yeah, usually yeah. those two go kind of hand in hand with the with each other and mm-hmm. you can address both of them at the same time but with employment still so strong again i don't like to say this time is different but it, it is a very different environment mm-hmm. than what previous uh fed chairs have dealt with in the past yeah. two three decades and and powell acknowledged that as well where he said you know we realized we're gonna have to hike so aggressively that it actually does the adverse of our unemployment rate yeah jumps the unemployment rate they fully expect that to happen um and i guess the last the last thing i'll leave listeners here is just a a quick reminder that the market's always forward looking so just because we say this and the market reacted uh lower pretty aggressively you know we're we're down we're testing that 50-day moving average um you know and i'm talking about the market wanting to know when are we going to loosen when are we going to see that peak um the market is always forward looking. Just remember that um, just because Powell came out and had this, you know, very aggressive speech doesn't mean that the market's going to sit and wait and, and not look forward. Mm-hmm. Right. We just took a little bit of a step back and uh, I think it, it, it makes sense. Um, when, when you look at it, you know, we had a pretty good run. Anytime we have a pretty good run, you expect the market to come back, come down a little bit. And, and yeah, it's two steps forward, yeah. one step back. And we're, I think, in the middle of this one step back period. We don't know how long it's going to last or what the depth of it is going to be. Exactly. But we have to remember that it was one day, exactly. right? Yeah. And whenever the S&P 500 is below, let's say, the 200-day moving averages, mm-hmm. you're going to see more of these volatile days in the market. Yep. When it's a, above its 200-day moving average or in an uptrend, it's going to be less volatile moves. And then you can just see that very clearly looking back at history that yep. you know the, the best and the worst days tend to happen below the 200-day moving averages and, and in bear markets usually because yeah. there is so much volatility, yep. right? Yeah, So that's a great point. Um, moving on to the financial planning topic of the week, it was again, another blog post from Ben Carlson titled why people make dumb financial decisions on purpose. So, uh, he posted this tweet by Cliff Pickover, uh, saying mathematics, you only have one button to press to receive a potentially nice monetary award. Which do you press? Button number one is a red button that says an instant $1 million. Button number two is a green button that gives you a 50% chance at $50 million. If you understand probabilities, you hit the green button. Easy, right? Not so fast. 
let's say you have a million dollars in your proverbial pocket. Would you spend that money for a 50% shot at 50 million with an equal probability of losing it all? Losses sting twice as bad as gains make us feel good. How much regret would you have if you turned down 1 million and ended up with nothing? The mathematical answer is you hit green every time, the 50% chance for 50 million. The psychological answer is hit, you hit red every time, the instant 1 million. The circumstantial answer is, well, it depends. If you don't have a dime to your name, you should take the guaranteed million dollars all day, every day. But what if you have some money? What if you're already a millionaire? At that level of wealth, taking the 50-50 shot at 50 million might be far more tempting. Circumstances tend to trump math when making big money decisions. Circumstances matter. Risk is personal. So Ben posted his own question on his Twitter uh, and did a poll um, this previous week based on a reader email. Ben said, let's say you refinanced into a 2.75% mortgage rate, but with a growing family now desire a larger home. Mortgage rates are now 5.75%. Do you trade in the house for a higher rate and higher priced home or stick it out for a sub three mortgage rate? A lot of people chimed in, many certain of their answers, and here are some of them. You have to do it. There's no mortgage rate that's more important than family. Don't even think about it. Make the kids sleep on bunk beds. A big house is not worth it. And the last, just buy a new house and rent out the old place with a low mortgage rate. That way you never let it go. The problem with big decisions like this is there's no perfect answer. Each option could be right for the right family under the right circumstances. Life is more about shades of gray than black or white when thinking of these kind of problems. We don't get to test drive our financial lives in some experiment where we go perform Monte Carlo simulations thousands of times to figure out the optimal path with the highest probability of success. You have to take into account your current circumstances, appetite for risk, financial situation, potential for regret and happiness when working through difficult money decisions. Sometimes people make dumb financial decisions on purpose because it makes sense for them, even if it doesn't make sense for you. So, you know, I, I really like this, Nick, because money is personal and there's no generic answer that's going to satisfy everybody in the country. Right. Yeah. Um, and I think it's really easy in today's day and age to compare um, to others in your circles, right? In your family circle, your friend circle. Mm -hmm. It's like keeping up with the Joneses, right? right. But I, I think you're just going to do more psychological damage to yourself if you do that, because you just have to make the decision based on, on your personal finances, on your family and nobody else's, right? right. Absolutely. Um, so thought that was really good. If you want to check out the full blog post by Ben, uh, you can go ahead and do that. It'll be the link to that uh, blog post will be in our show notes um, on Twitter at Jessup Wealth or LinkedIn or Facebook, uh, Jessup Wealth Management. Uh, anything else you have for listeners, Nick, before we leave it here for the week? No, I would I would love it if I could run Monte Carlo simulations on every decision. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> be quite interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I do as well. Um, but thanks, everybody, for tuning in to episode number 165 of the Independent Advisors podcast. Hope you all have a wonderful rest of the week. Um, and I will be cheering for the Penn State Nittany Lions this week for the first uh, weekend of college football. All right. All right, everybody. We'll talk to you later.
Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. Also, check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. There you'll find links to every episode of the Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com. We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.